Section 11 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 9, European Statesmen, by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Chateaubriand, Part 1. 1768 to 1848, The Restoration and Fall of the Bourbons. In this lecture I wish to treat of the restoration of the Bourbons and of the counter-revolution in France. On the fall of Napoleon, the Prussian king and the Austrian emperor, under the predominating influence of Metternich, in restoring their Bourbons, were adverse to constitutional checks. They wanted nothing less than absolute monarchy such as existed before the revolution. On the other hand, the Tsar Alexander, generous and inclined then to liberal ideas, was willing to concede something to the revolution, while the government of England, mindful of the liberty which had made that country so glorious and so prosperous, also favored a constitutional government in the person of the legitimate heir of the French monarchy. Such was also the wish of the French nation, so far as it could be expressed, for the French people, under whatever form of government they may have lived, have never forgotten or repudiated the ideas and bequests of the greatest movement in modern times. Prussia and Austria, therefore, were obliged to yield to Russia and England, supported by the will of the French nation itself. Russia had no jealousy of French ideas, and England certainly could not, consistently with her struggles and her traditions, oppose what the English nation resolutely clung to, and of which it was so proud. Prussia and Austria, undisturbed by revolutions, wished simply the restoration of the status quo, which with them meant absolute monarchy, but which in France was not really the status quo, since the revolution had effected great and permanent changes even under the regime of Bonaparte. Russia and England, in conceding something to liberty, were yet as earnest and sincere advocates of legitimacy as Prussia and Austria, for constitutional rights may exist under a monarchy as well as under a republic. Moreover, it was felt by enlightened statesmen of all parties that no government could be stable and permanent in France which ignored the bequests of the revolution, which even Napoleon professed to respect. Accordingly, it was settled that Louis the Eighteenth, the younger brother of Louis the Sixteenth, who had fled from France in 1792, should be recalled from exile, and restored to the throne of his ancestors, since he agreed to accept checks to his authority, and swore to defend the new constitution, although he insisted upon reigning by the grace of God, not as a monarch who received his crown from the people, or as a gift from other monarchs, but by divine right. To this all parties consented. He maintained the dignity of the royal prerogative at the same time that he recognized the essential liberties of the nation. They were not so full and complete as those in England, but the king guaranteed to secure the rights of both public and private property, to respect the freedom of the press, to grant liberty of worship, to maintain the national obligations, to make the judicial power independent and irremovable, and to admit all French men to civil and military employment without restrictions in matters of religion. These in substance constituted the charter which he granted on condition of reigning, an immense gain to France and the cause of civilization, if honestly maintained. Louis the Eighteenth was neither a great king nor a great man, but his long exile of twenty years, his travels and residences in various countries in Europe, his misfortunes and his studies, had liberalized his mind without embittering his heart. He never lost his dignity or his hopes in his sad reverses, and when he was thus recalled to France to mount the throne of his murdered brother, he was a very respectable man, both from natural intelligence and extensive attainments. 
he possessed great social conversational powers was moderate in his views of catholicism virtuous in his private character affectionate with his friends and in the members of his family prudent in the exercise of power and disposed to reign according to the constitution which he honestly had accepted but socially he restored the ancient order of things surrounded himself with a splendid court lived in great pomp and ceremony and appointed the ancient nobles to the higher offices of state according to french writers he was the equal in conversation of any of the great men with whom he was brought in contact without being great himself thereby resembling louis the fourteenth he had handsome features a musical voice pleasing manners and singular urbanity without being condescending he was infirm in his legs which prevented him from taking exercise except in his long daily drives drawn in his magnificent carriage by eight horses without riders and guards the king delegated his powers to no single statesman but held the reins in his own hand his ability as a ruler consisted in his tact and moderation in managing the conflicting parties and in his honest abstention from encroaching on the liberties of the people in rare emergencies so that his reign was peaceable and tolerably successful it required no inconsiderable ability to preserve the throne to his successor amid such a war of factions and such a disposition for encroachments on the part of the royal family in contrast with the splendid achievements and immense personality of napoleon louis the eighteenth is not a great figure in history but had there been no revolution and no napoleon he would have left the fame of a wise and benevolent sovereign his only striking weakness was in submitting to the influence of either a favorite or a woman like all the bourbons from henry the fourth downward except perhaps louis the sixteenth who would have been more fortunate had he yielded implicitly to the overpowering ascendancy of such a woman as madame de maintenon or such a minister as richelieu the reign of louis the eighteenth is not marked by great events or great passions except the unrelenting and bitter animosity of the royalists to everything which characterized the revolution or the military ascendancy of napoleon by their incessant intrigues and unbounded hatreds and intolerant bigotry they kept the kingdom in constant turmoils even to the verge of revolution gradually pushing the king into impolitic measures against his will and his better judgment and creating reaction to all liberal movements these turmoils which are uninteresting to us form no inconsiderable part of the history of the times the only great event of the reign was the war in spain to suppress revolutionary ideas in that miserable country ground down by priests and royal despotism and a prey to every conceivable faction the ministry which the king appointed on his accession was composed of able moderate and honest men but without any ascendant genius except talleyrand who selected his colleagues and retained for himself the portfolio of foreign affairs and the presidency of the council giving to fauche the management of internal affairs loath was the king to accept the services of either the one a regicide and the other a traitor the whole royal family set up a howl of indignation at the appointment of fauche but it was deemed necessary to secure his services in order to maintain law and order and the king remained firm against the earnest expostulations of his brother the comte d'artois his niece the duchesse d'anglomay and all the royalists who had influence with him but he despised and hated in his soul fauche that minion of napoleon that product of blood and treason and waited only for a convenient time to banish him from the councils and the realm nor did he like talleyrand at that time the greatest man in france but made use of his magnificent talent only until he could do without him when the king felt established on his throne he sent talleyrand away 
indeed there was great pressure brought to bear for the dismissal by those who found the minister too moderate in his views the king did not punish him but kept him in a subordinate office leaving him to enjoy his dignities and the immense fortune he had accumulated talleyrand was born in seventeen fifty four and belonged to one of the most illustrious families in france he was destined to the church against his will being from the start worldly ambitious and scandalously immoral but he accepted his destiny and soon distinguished himself at the sorbonne for his literary attainments for his wit and his social qualities at twenty as the young abbe de perigord he was received into the highest society of paris his noble birth his aristocratic and courtly manners his convivial qualities and his irrepressible wit made him a favorite in the gay circles which marked the early part of the reign of louis the sixteenth while his extraordinary abilities and consummate tact naturally secured early promotion in seventeen eighty he was appointed to the office of general agent for the clergy of france which brought him before the public eight years after at the early age of thirty-four he was made bishop of altoun in may seventeen eighty nine he became a member of the states general and with his fascinating eloquence tried to induce the clergy to surrender their tithes and church lands to the nation a result which was brought about soon after nolens volens by the genius of mirabeau talleyrand hated the church and despised the people but like mirabeau was in favor of a constitution like that of england in all his changes he remained an aristocrat from his tastes his education and his rank but veiled his views whatever they were with profound dissimulation of which he was a consummate master the laxity of his morals the secret hatred of his order and his infidel sentiments led to his excommunication which troubled him but little out of the pale of the church he turned his thoughts to diplomacy and was sent to london as an ambassador without however the official title and insignia of that high office where he fascinated the highest circles by the splendor of his conversation and the causticity of his wit on his return to paris he was distrusted by the jacobins and with difficulty made his escape to england but the english government also distrusted a man of such boundless intrigue and ordered him to quit the country within twenty-four hours he fled to america at the age of forty with straitened means but after the close of the reign of terror returned to paris and six months later was made foreign minister under the directory this office he did not long retain failing to secure the confidence of the government the austere carnot said of him that man brings with him all the vices of the old regime without being able to acquire a single virtue of the new one he possesses no fixed principles but changes them as he does his linen adopting them according to the fashion of the day he was a philosopher when philosophy was in vogue a republican now because it is necessary at present to be so in order to become anything to-morrow he would proclaim and uphold tyranny if he could thereby serve his own interests i will not have him at any price so long as i am at the helm of the state he shall be nothing when bonaparte returned from egypt citizen talleyrand had been six months out of office and he saw that it would be for his interest to put himself in intimate connection with the most powerful man in france besides as a diplomatist he saw that only in a monarchical government could he have employment napoleon who seldom made a mistake in his estimate of character perceived that talleyrand was just the man for his purpose talented dexterous unscrupulous and sagacious and made him his minister of foreign affairs utterly indifferent as to his private character nor could he politically have made a wiser choice for it was talleyrand who made the concordat with the pope the treaty of luneville and the peace of amiens 
napoleon wanted a practical man in the diplomatic post neither was a pedant nor an idealist and that was just what talleyrand was a man to meet emergencies a man to build up a throne but even napoleon got tired of him at last and talleyrand retired with the dignity of vice grand elector of the empire grand chamberlain and prince benevento together with a fortune it is said of thirty million francs how did you acquire your riches blandly asked the emperor one day in the simplest way in the world replied the ex-minister i bought stock the day before the eighteenth brumaire when napoleon overthrew the directory and sold it again the day after when napoleon meditated the conquest of spain talleyrand like metternich saw that it would be a blunder and frankly told the emperor his opinion a thing greatly to his credit but his advice enraged napoleon who could brook no opposition or dissent and he was turned out of his office as chamberlain talleyrand avenged himself by plotting against his sovereign foreseeing his fall and betraying him to the bourbons he gave his support to louis the eighteenth because he saw that the only government then possible for france was one combining legitimacy with constitutional checks for talleyrand with all his changes and treasons liked neither an unfettered despotism nor democratic rule as one of those who acted with the revolutionists he was liberal in his ideas but as the servant of royalty he wished to see a firmly established government which to his mind was impossible with the reign of demagogues when the congress of vienna was assembled he was sent to it as the french plenipotentiary and he did good work at the congress for his sovereign whose representative he was and for his country by contriving with his adroit manipulations to alienate the northern from the southern states of germany making the latter allies of france and the former allies of russia in other words practically dividing germany which it was the work of bismarck afterward to unite a united germany talleyrand regarded as threatening to the interest of france and he contrived to bring france back again into political importance to restore her rank among the great powers he did not bargain for spoils like the other plenipotentiaries he only strove to preserve the nationality of france and to secure her ancient limits which prussia in her greed and hatred would have destroyed or impaired but for the magnanimity of the czar alexander and the firmness of lord castlereagh on his return from the congress of vienna the reign of talleyrand as prime minister was short and as his power was comparatively small under both louis the eighteenth and his successor charles the tenth and as he was not the representative of a reactionary idea or movements but only of a firm government i do not give to him the leadership of the counter-revolution he was unquestionably the greatest statesman at that time in france though indolent careless and without power as an orator who was then the great exponent of reaction and of antagonism to liberal and progressive opinions during the reigns of the restored bourbons it was not the king himself louis the eighteenth for he did all he could to repress the fanatical zeal of his family and of the royalist party he despised the feeble mind of his brother the comte d'artois his narrow intolerance and his court of priests and bigots and was in perpetual conflict with him as a politician while at the same time he clung to him with the ties of natural affection was it the duc de richelieu grand nephew of the great cardinal whom the king selected for his prime minister on the retirement of talleyrand he hardly represents the return to absolutism since he was moderate conciliatory and disposed to unite all parties under a constitutional government no man in france was more respected than he adored by his family modest virtuous disinterested and patriotic as an administrator in the service of russia during the ascendancy of napoleon he had greatly distinguished himself 
he was a favorite of alexander and through his influence with the czar france was in no slight degree indebted for the favorable terms which she received on the restoration of the monarchy when prussia exacted a cruel indemnity he wished to unite all parties in loyal submission to the constitution rather than secure the ascendancy while able and highly respected richelieu was not preeminently great nor was villele who succeeded him as prime minister and who retained his power for six or eight years nearly to the close of the reign of charles x a great historical figure the man under the restored monarchy who represented with the most ability reactionary movements of all kinds and devotion to the cause of absolute monarchy i think was francois auguste vicomte de chateaubriand certainly he was the most illustrious character of that period poet order diplomatist minister he was a man of genius who stands out as a great figure in history not so great as talleyrand in the single department of diplomacy but an infinitely more respectable and many-sided man he had an immense eclat in the early part of this century as writer and poet although his literary fame has now greatly declined lamartine in his sentimental and rhetorical exaggeration speaks of him as the ossian of france an aeolian harp producing sounds which ravish the ear and agitate the heart but which the mind cannot define the poet of instincts rather than of ideas who gained an immortal empire not over the reason but over the imagination of the age chateaubriand was born in brittany of a noble but not illustrious family in seventeen sixty nine entered the army in seventeen eighty six and during the reign of terror emigrated to america he returned to france in seventeen ninety nine after the eighteenth brumaire and became a contributor to the mercure de france in eighteen o two he published the genie du christianisme which made him enthusiastically admired as a literary man the only man of the time who could compete with the fame of madame de stal this book astonished a country that had been led astray by an infidel philosophy and converted it back to christianity not by force of arguments but by an appeal to the heart and the imagination the clergy the aristocracy women and youth were alike enchanted the author was sent to rome by napoleon as secretary of his embassy but on the murder of the du de hein eighteen o four chateaubriand left the imperial service and lived in retirement traveling to the holy land and throughout the orient and southern europe and writing his books of travels he took no interest in political affairs until the time of the restoration when he again appeared a brilliant and effective pamphlet de bonaparte et de bourbons published by him in eighteen fourteen was said by louis the eighteenth to be worth an army of a hundred thousand men to the cause of the bourbons and upon their re-establishment chateaubriand was immediately in high favor and was made a member of the chamber of peers the chamber of peers was substituted for the senate of napoleon and was elected by the king it had cognizance of the crime of high treason and of all attempts against the safety of the state it was composed of the most distinguished nobles the bishops and marshals of france presided over by the chancellor to this chamber the ministers were admitted as well as to the chamber of deputies the members of which were elected by about one hundred thousand voters out of thirty millions of people they were all men of property and as aristocratic as the peers themselves they began their sessions by granting prodigal compensations indemnities and endowments to the crown and to the princes they appropriated thirty-three millions of francs annually for the maintenance of the king besides voting thirty millions more for the payment of his debts they passed a law restoring to the former proprietors the lands alienated to the state and still unsold 
they brought to punishment the generals who had deserted to napoleon during the one hundred days of his renewed reign they manifested the most intense hostility to the regime which he had established indeed all classes joined in the course against the fallen emperor and attributed to him alone the misfortunes of france vengeance not now directed at royalists but against republicans was the universal cry the people demanded the heads of those who had been their idols everything like admiration for napoleon seemed to have passed away forever the violence of the royalists for speedy vengeance on their old foes surpassed the cries of the revolutionists in the reign of terror france was again convulsed with passions which especially raged in the bosoms of the royalists they shot marshal ney the bravest of the brave and colonel labedoyen they established courts martial for political offences they passed a law against seditious cries and individual liberty there were massacres at marseilles and atrocities at nimes the catholics of the south persecuted the protestants the king himself was almost the only man among his party that was inclined to moderation and he found a bitter opposition from the members of his own family added to these discords the finances were found to be in a most disordered state and the annual deficit was fifty or sixty millions all this was taking place while one hundred and fifty thousand foreign soldiers were quartered in the towns and garrisons at the expense of the government the return of napoleon had cost the lives of sixty thousand frenchmen and a thousand million of francs besides the indemnities which amounted to fifteen hundred millions more no language of denunciation could be stronger than that which went forth from the mouth of the whole nation in view of napoleon's selfishness and ambition but one voice was listened to and that was the cry for vengeance prudence moderation and justice were alike disregarded all attempts to stem the tide of ultra-royalist violence were in vain the king was obliged to dismiss talleyrand because he was not violent enough in his measures at the same time he was glad to get rid of his sagacious minister being jealous of his ascendancy so the throne of louis the eighteenth was anything but a bed of roses amid the war of parties and the perils which surrounded it all his tact was required to steer the ship of state amidst the rocks and breakers most of the troubles were centered in the mutual hostilities jealousies and hatreds of the royalists themselves at the head of whom were the king's brother the comte d'artois and the vicomte de chateaubriand so vehement were the passions of the deputies nearly all the royalists that the president of the chamber the excellent and talented Lanay was publicly insulted in his chair by a violent member of the extreme right and even chateaubriand the king was obliged to deprive of his office on account of the violence of his opinions in behalf of absolutism a greater royalist than the king himself the terrible reaction was forced by the nation upon the sovereign who was more liberal and humane than the people of course in the embittered quarrels between the royalists themselves nothing was done during the reign of louis the eighteenth towards useful and needed reforms the orders in the chambers did not discuss great ideas of any kind and inaugurated no grand movements not even internal improvements the only subjects which occupied the chambers were proscriptions confiscations grants to the royal family the restoration of the clergy to their old possessions salaries to high officials the trials of state prisoners conspiracies and crimes against the government all of no sort of interest to us and of no historical importance in the meantime there assembled at verona a congress composed of nearly all the sovereigns of europe with their representatives as brilliant an assemblage as that at vienna a few years before it meant not to put down a great conqueror but to suppress revolutionary ideas and movements which were beginning to break out in various countries in europe especially in italy and spain 
to this congress was sent as one of the representatives of france chateaubriand who on its assembling was ambassador at london he was however weary of english life and society he did not like the climate with its interminable fogs he was not received by the higher aristocracy with the cordiality he expected and seemed to be intimate with no one but canning whose conversion to liberal views had not then taken place in france the ministry of the duc de richelieu had been succeeded by that of villel as president of the council in which monsieur matthieu de montmorency was minister of foreign affairs member of a most illustrious house and one of the finest characters that ever adorned an exalted station between montmorency and chateaubriand there existed the most intimate and affectionate friendship and it was at the urgent solicitation of the former that chateaubriand was recalled from london and sent with montmorency to verona where he had a wider scope for his ambition End of section eleven